Olaso. So this morning we return to the meditative cultivation of compassion, probing beyond the most manifest level of suffering upon the suffering that is most apparent, looking beneath the surface at this suffering of change. To emphasize once again, of course, the suffering is not intrinsic in change any more than pleasure is intrinsic in the color of hair or other, other kind of impressions, appearances, and so forth. The suffering of change is exactly the suffering that arises due to attachment which fixes on objects with at least the implicit hope that they will stay as they are. In other words, it's delusional because nothing that we experience in this whole world of conditioned existence stays as it is, everything constantly in flux. So if one is hoping either to acquire something that will be permanent within this world of change, or if one is holding on to something with the hope that it will remain as it is, then one is bound for disappointment. So within the Buddhist tradition, there are different responses to suffering that arises within this world of change. And what one is, at least it seems to imply, a throwing of the baby out with the bathwater. And that is wanting to be free of suffering, therefore wanting to utterly and irreversibly be free from the whole world of change as well. And that is the approach. That's the aspiration of those who are seeking their own liberation. The shravakayana is to see samsara, bad. Nirvana, good. Don't want, want. And I want that to be irreversible. In other words, the aspiration to achieve nirvana and to die, which does not mean ex being extinguished, obliterated, annihilated, but in the, in the view in the, in the, as articulated in the Pali Canon, maintained nowadays in the Theravada tradition, the view is to achieve nirvana and then to no longer be reborn at all, ever. And you've gone to an inconceivable state beyond existence, non-existence, but is, which is beyond the realm of change and therefore also, of course, beyond the realm of suffering. The Mahayana aspiration, the Bodhisattva ideal, is really fundamentally different. Still, the aspiration to be free of suffering is there. It's always there. It runs through all Buddhist schools. The aspiration to be free of suffering. But the enlightenment of a Buddha, so delve a little bit into Buddhahood, this non-abiding nirvana, and that is to achieve Buddhahood, the ideal being to achieve perfect awakening. I love the word. Such that you're neither immersed in samsara as usual, which then entails all the suffering, neither immersed in nirvana, utterly transcending everything in the world of change, but experiencing both simultaneously. So the word awakening, awakening, we can see a faint metaphor of this, rather actually a very cool metaphor, and you know it's coming, and that is to be lucid within the midst of a dream, and I mean radically, thoroughly, profoundly lucid, so there's just no aspect of dream reality that you don't fathom, and of course, you're recognizing it as dream reality. And therefore, in the midst of a thoroughly lucid dream, there's just no reason for you to suffer about anything. No matter what happens in the dream, you realize its nature. 
you're attached to nothing in this world of appearances. Why on earth would you be? Because you recognize it as dream appearances. You recognize your own appearance in the dream as just a matrix of empty appearances. So there would be no suffering, even though you're still within the dream. And hence the Buddha also awake within this dream that we call reality. And so there's an ideal. And then the ideal expresses itself in the aspiration, so core, so utterly core, to the Mahayana ideal of compassion. And that is for as long as space remains, for as long as sentient beings remain, so long may I remain to alleviate the suffering of the world. Right? Very powerful. Which means for as long as sentient beings remain, you're still aspiring, willing to remain in the world of change. But not as just one more suffering sentient being, then you're just part of the people who need to be healed, but to remain awakened and then to be present in the world, but not of it, awake within the world that other people are grasping onto as inherently and objectively real. So if we go back to the Pali Canon, and one looks, because the Buddha referred so many times to the origins of suffering, he often referred to the origins of suffering as being craving, attachment, greed. So the mental affliction, afflictive desire, afflictive desire, where we are attached to some object or appearance, another person, a place, and so forth, grasping onto them, reifying them, very likely grasping onto them as being durable, and then, of course, suffering as a result. So that which is kind of right there in the, the front end of driving samsara is craving, attachment. Whether it's craving and attachment that we're so familiar with in the desire realm, seeing all these appearances and then desiring them, latching onto them, and then, lo and behold, being really startled when we suffer. Or the more subtle, much more subtle, craving and attachment to form and formless realm, the kind of issues that Marcus raised earlier. The bliss of samadhi, could one become attached to that? And the answer is yes, you could. The bliss arising in the form realm, the profound equanimity, could one become attached to the profound equanimity in the formless realm, which is beyond pleasure and pain? The answer is yes, you could. And so there are gradations and gradations of craving, but they all bind you into just the perpetuation of samsara. So that's kind of on the front, front end of driving samsara, is craving for, primarily for us, it's the desire realm, but as you ventured more deeply into the nature of reality, then a craving and attachment for the bounties of the form realm and then the formless realm altogether. But what underlies and what is the common denominator among all these forms of craving and attachment is delusion. Delusion. So epistemically, in terms of the way we're apprehending reality, the core fundamental, utterly fundamental cause of samsara is ignorance giving rise to delusion, delusion giving rise to afflictive attachment, craving, and so forth. Pragmatically speaking, then it's the afflictive desire and so forth that are really driving samsara. So as we, come, as we return to this meditation that is, can be so moving, that is so ubiquitous, it, it, it embraces us all, all of us who are still driven by afflictive desires and so on, then there is an element of wisdom 
that must go along with such an aspiration. Otherwise, it's shallow. It has no substance to it. And it can be synopsized in these four themes. I'm sure I've mentioned them before, but they're really important. And that is to sustain an awareness. This is, once again, mindfulness. It's not just what's happening in the in, in moment by moment, but sustaining a type of wisdom, sustaining, remembering a type of insight, a knowledge, a knowing, and letting this saturate all of your engagements with reality, other people, your body, your mind, the environment. And that is just the ongoing knowing, the recalled knowing, that everything that is born perishes. So never be surprised. Never be surprised. As soon as there's conception, even in the womb, we all know babies can be stillborn. They can die in the first trimester, the second trimester, the third trimester. There's no point from conception on when you are invulnerable to dying, right? You can die at birth, die in infancy, childhood, and so forth, and you can die at age of 48. There's no surprise. There should be no surprise. So, oh, but he died so young. Or I know someone here who lost a child. So sad still in youth, and one feels, oh, that mustn't be. Had never a chance to experience adulthood, never a chance, never a chance, died, still teenager. That sadness arises, of course. But why surprise? Exactly what age group is it that we're invulnerable to, to death, you know? So the awareness there, if we want to be realistic from conception on, any day is a suitable day to die, not a good day to die. But we are always vulnerable every single moment. But that's just the nature of things. We may as well get used to it and bear it in mind. That's sati. Bear it in mind. Bear it in mind. Don't be surprised. Don't be dismayed. Whatever is acquired will be lost. At any time, don't be surprised. Don't be dismayed. Why be dismayed at reality? It's like being dismayed when the sun comes up, or when the sun sets, or when it rains, or when it snows. Why be dismayed? It's just what happens. So why be dismayed? It's just the way things are. Right? Wherever there's meeting, there will be parting. You can count on it. It's only a matter of time, but it's guaranteed. It's one of those islands in the ocean of possibility. Absolutely, it's already happened. We just don't know exactly when. But that island is already there. As soon as there is a, a meeting, a meeting of lovers, of friends, of student and teacher, and so forth, there'll be parting. Wherever there's elevation to high status, power, affluence, and so forth, count on it. There'll be a fall. So in the midst of this, especially in the loss of a loved one, it's utterly normal, of course, that grief arises. And there's a lot of wisdom from modern psychology. They've attended this very closely, we think with a lot of compassion, a lot of wisdom. When people do experience grief at the loss of a loved one, a child, a friend, a relative, a parent, and so forth, how to deal with that grief. There's a lot of wisdom out there. So I don't think I really need to add more. But from a hedonic perspective, it's kind of assumed, well, of course, if someone dear to you, someone close, dies, you should be grieving. This is your obligation. Why? Why? Is it grieving? If it's grieving for yourself, 
It's a harsh reality. But the reality is, if you're grieving for yourself, it's because of attachment. If a loved one has just passed away, then practice compassion. Practice loving kindness. Wish them well. From the Buddhist view, and I would say it's just a reality view, they're not terminated. They're carrying on. Wish them well. Send them your thoughts of loving kindness. Send them your thoughts of compassion. Wish them well in the transition beyond this life. Wish them well into the next life. They're moving on. Why don't we as well? But why lingering grief? Poor me, poor me, my, my, my loved one, my, my, my. It's just come and get real. We're not obliged. If the grief arises, then call on modern psychology. Call on your loved ones, your friends, and so forth. Get the support to process the grief, move through the grief. There's a lot of wisdom there. I have nothing to add. But there is something deeper there. expressed by the arhats when the Buddha himself was passing away. As virtually all of his other disciples were just utterly overwhelmed by grief. Utter, utterly overwhelmed by grief. How can, we, how can we live without him? But when the Buddha was passing away, the arhats remained calm, with no sadness. They're just aware, as they see the Buddha dying, they're aware all that arises, passes. And they attended with equanimity. They feel compassion for the world, that people would no longer have, the have access to the Buddha, of course. But were they feeling themselves inwardly grief at the loss of their teacher? By the accounts in the suttas, no. The attachment wasn't there. The reverence, the love, the admiration, and so forth. All that, yes. So is it possible to envision close relationships of friendship, of marriage, of romance, all other kinds of relationship, where there's tremendous fondness and affection, trust, friendship, tremendous warmth in a relationship. Is it possible to envision that, all of that, very meaningful, deep, mutually nurturing relationships of all kinds, including student-teacher, without attachment? Can we even envision it? Think so. I think it's possible to envision. So there it is, to envision that. So as we move into the practice, this cultivation of compassion, that we may be all free of the suffering of change by attending to reality, soaking our minds in reality, bearing reality in mind, all that born perishes, all that is acquired is lost. Wherever there's meeting, there's parting. Wherever there's elevation, then there's descent. Just holding that in mind. It's the way things are. And if we accustom ourselves to live in accordance with it, with respect to our own bodies, our own minds, our acquisitions, our relationships, and so forth, we can be as loving, as attentive, as close, as nurturing, compassionate, as ever before, quite possibly far more than before. Just We've just teased out one element, and that is the attachment. That's fine surgery, because it's so easy to become disillusioned with another person. Oh, you, you didn't live up to my expectations. I felt so close to you. I felt so, such a connection with you. Friendship, love relationship, whatever. I felt this tremendous interest in me, this closeness, this affinity with you. But then things changed, 
and now I'm no longer in love with you. Now I'm no longer, I no longer feel that bond of friendship. I no longer feel that deep admiration, affection, that strong resonance and affinity. So I don't care about you anymore. As if the love can't be sustained without attachment. That's normal. That's the standard. That's the habitual. That we deeply care about others only if there's the attachment. And the Buddhist ideal is you'll care far more deeply, really attend to the other, if you do so without attachment. In which case the heart is open, the caring, the affection, all of that is there. The one thing that's not there is the attachment, the self-centered attachment. So if you find that a worthy ideal, then introduce that into your cultivation of compassion as we attend to self and others with the aspiration that we may be free of the suffering of change. Powerful medicine. Oh, not so. Find a comfortable position. There's an aphorism that I think is quite common in English. It is, physician, heal thyself. Before we seek to heal others, to calm the afflictions of their minds, let's heal and calm our own bodies and minds by first of all settling the body in its natural state. In the same spirit of compassion, settling the respiration in its natural rhythm, and then setting the mind at ease in stillness and clarity for a little while with mindfulness of breathing.
as we turn our attention to the meditative cultivation of compassion, we may bring to mind the statement by Shantideva with reference to bodhicitta. the Bodhisattva's aspiration to achieve perfect awakening for the sake of all sentient beings. And he comments, if you don't aspire to realize bodhicitta for your own sake, in your own self-interest, why would you ever aspire to achieve it for the sake of others? So likewise, if we don't truly aspire to be free of the suffering of a change ourselves, to be free of its underlying causes, how would we ever aspire for such freedom for others? So let's begin by attending to ourselves. Drawing on memory, imagination, and intelligence. And reflect upon and bear in mind the suffering that you've experienced in the past. That has arisen due to attachment of any kind. suffering of change to which you are vulnerable in the present and will be in the future. Reflect upon the causal relationship between attachment or afflictive desire and such suffering. Drawing on your powers of imagination, venture into the realm of possibility. As you arouse the aspiration with each in-breath, may I be free of the suffering of change and the underlying causes. With each in-breath, imagine symbolically such suffering and its causes. a type of enveloping darkness, and with each in-breath, imagine drawing it into and extinguishing it in this radiant orb of light at your heart, symbolizing the deepest dimension of your own awareness, primordial consciousness. And breath by breath, imagine becoming free.
direct your awareness outwards. Focus on an individual or a group of individuals as you wish, for whom it's clear to you that they are suffering. Because of this suffering of change. That suffering is often not blatant, not manifest. But like a hidden cancer that's just waiting to metastasize. The suffering is there. All the seeds are sown. It will manifest. It's only a matter of time. Tending closely. With each in-breath, arouse the yearning. May you be free of the suffering of change and its underlying causes. With each in-breath, imagine dark, drawing in the darkness. With each in-breath, imagine them becoming free.
let your attention rove, alighting upon another person, another group of persons. Let your attention rove, and let's continue practicing individually.
and release all appearances and objects to the mind, release all aspirations. Let your awareness rest in its own nature with no object. Some finesse, just to give a footnote, a final comment. Some finesse, some precision is really needed here, uh, a kind of a middle way. It takes intelligence, but we all have it, so I'm not calling upon anything, it's not there. And that is, even among practicing Buddhists, sometimes there's confusion. Thinking simply that desire is the root of suffering. Just that, simple desire. Desire for anything is a root of suffering. And therefore, just be free of all desires. So all notions of achieving anything, oh no, that's one more desire. That's going to be trouble. So don't desire to achieve shamatha. Don't even think about it. It's bad. Bad, 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 bad. Don't want to develop greater compassion or the four measurables. No, no, that's desire. Stop that. Let's have to give you spanking. Don't want to achieve bodhicitta. Don't want to achieve liberation. Don't want to achieve enlightenment of a Buddha. Because that's desire. It's dualistic. That's foolishness. You'll find no basis for that in any of the teachings of the Buddha in the Pali Canon. 
you'll not find no basis for that in any of the Buddhist teachings in the Mahayana canon. You'll find no basis for that in any of the teachings of the Buddha in the Vajrayana. Nowhere. It's New Age crap. Sorry. But it's just way overboard. And nobody's going to do it anyway. What's the first step there? What's the, if you really want to follow those instructions, what's the first step? I desire to have no desires. <laughs> so you can't even get to first base. It's impossible. It's absurd. It's ridiculous. It's New Age crap. So sorry. But really, don't go there. That's just foolishness. If we want to be foolish, we don't have to practice Dharma. We have our own foolishness. We, have, we already have a bounty of foolishness. Right? But now let's move beyond that. So clearly there are aspirations, desires, yearnings, ideals that are tremendously meaningful within a relative context. The aspiration, as if your hair is on fire. That was the Buddha's analogy. To achieve shamatha, to realize the four immeasurables, bodhicitta. If you're a Vajrayana practitioner, state regeneration, stage of completion, realization of emptiness, tekchut and tutkyao, these are enormously meaningful aspirations. By all means, embrace them, embrace them. And in so doing, our infatuation with mundane concerns may really fade away, which is a good thing, right? As our focus really becomes quite single-pointed on, on the cultivation of genuine happiness. So between desire and afflictive desire, desire which can be wholesome, unwholesome, or neutral, and then mental afflictions which are defined as afflictive, then experientially, how should we tell the difference? Because they're all, they, are, they are all desires. Right? And I think this might be a key. And as, as we are desiring something that we don't yet have, desiring shamatha, desiring a partner, a romantic partner, or desiring some possession, and so forth, if as you're desiring it, you're feeling anxiety, maybe I won't get it. Him, her, it, whatever it is, I may won't get it. And it makes the heart flutter, fear, anxiety, trepidation. I really, really want it. And the more I want it, the more the anxiety is. Oh, that's attachment. And then if you don't get it, and you're disappointed, that's attachment. That's attachment. If you got it, whatever it is, person, thing, status, whatever it may be, if you've got it, and you're anxious about losing it, that's attachment. And if you do lose it, and you're disappointed, dismayed, grief-stricken, that's attachment. So can we even envision having desires for things that we've not, not yet achieved? Having desires for things that we're experiencing right now, that we're enjoying, that we savor, like this beautiful environment here. Do you desire it? Do you wish it to continue? Can we imagine Desiring things that are already present, desiring things that may be present in the future, but without attachment. That's wisdom. That's wisdom. So, to be free within the world of change, that really calls for some union of compassion and wisdom, not just compassion. Oh, lasso. <laughs>